Our Holy Father, we acknowledge there is no other foundation than the one that has been laid, which is Christ Jesus. Thank you that in the midst of a world that seemingly is in turmoil, that you reign and rule in the heavens above, that nothing has taken you by surprise. You warned us that a day would come when humanity would be like the days of Noah, days of moral permissiveness. In the days of Lot, days of moral perversion. Those are our days. Help us as you are setting the stage to the people of Israel. Help us, O God, to have our eyes wide open, to be ready to be quick to say what is right, to defend our Savior, to speak up for Him. For you said an hour is coming when no man can work. Thank you that as we gather together, we're encouraged that we are able not only to encourage one another, but to worship you corporately. And we worship you this morning in spirit and in truth, and we ask that as we open your word, that you would renew our minds, that we would be able to think our thoughts after your thoughts, that your ways would become our ways. Oh God, we humbly ask for the Spirit to be our teacher, to open the truth that he inspired, to illuminate to our hearts and minds. Help me, my Father, fill me in your grace and mercy. Please use me that together we might exalt Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his holy name. Amen. Take your Bibles, would you turn to the book of Daniel chapter 6. If you're new to the Bible, find Psalms, which is about dead center. Scan to the right. You'll come to Ezekiel. And right after the prophet Ezekiel, one of Daniel's contemporaries, you will come to this prophet. If you're new, we've been working our way verse by verse through this book, and our text of Scripture today is one of the best-known passages in all of the Bible. It's the historical record of Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel, we've been studying. He's an amazing individual. He teaches us many timeless principles on how to walk with God, how to stand strong morally, ethically, spiritually in a society that is becoming more and more pagan. Many of you know D.L. Moody. He was the great evangelist of the 19th century. He died in December of 1899. God used him on three continents to bring tens of thousands of people to faith in Christ. His hometown was in Northfield, Massachusetts, not all that far from where I was raised. And this is the text that is on his tombstone. The one who does the will of God abides forever. It's from 1 John 2. John said, the world is passing away and also it's lost, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. That certainly could have been Daniel's epitaph. He was a man who not only started well, he was a man who finished well. He was a man who consistently walked with God, who did the will of God. The world, its lost and its powers are passing away. But Daniel, now an old man when we come to the sixth chapter, we met him as a youth, now he's between 85 and 90. He is finishing well. Let's begin by reading our text so we have a flavor of the historical setting. Daniel chapter 6, beginning now in verse 1. Follow along in your Bibles. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners, that these satraps might be accountable to them, and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. 
and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption, inasmuch as he was faithful, in no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows, King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den." Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document that is the injunction. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, this statement is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Now, to appreciate this a great event, we need to understand it in its historical context. So let me bring you to where we are in our study of Daniel. If you read through the book several times, you will see there are two key divisions as pictured here. In Daniel 1 through 6, we find Daniel and his personal friends. And then in Daniel 7 through 12, we find Daniel and his peoples, namely Israel's future. Chapters 1 through 6, we saw, are largely historical with just a little bit of prophecy sprinkled in. It's all said in the third person. When you come to the seventh chapter, you know there is an immediate change because the whole narrative changes to the first person. The second half of the book is almost all prophecy with just a little bit of history sprinkled in. Now, don't forget that chapters 1 through 6 take place chronologically. And chapters 7 through 12 take place during the events of 1 through 6. And so as we work through 7 through 12, I will show you where it will fit in in the first six chapters. Now, let me take you into the more immediate context where we've been so far. The first six chapters record six historical events. The book opens in chapter 1, introducing us to four young men who are deported as teenagers. If you remember, Nabopolassar was king when General Nebuchadnezzar in 605 BC comes down to siege the city of Jerusalem. In the process, he finds that his daddy has died. 
So he keeps the city under siege. He takes some hostages as, uh, from the royal family uh, for, you know, some backing, so to speak. And he goes back to Babylon where he's crowned king. He eventually comes back. And of course, in that first deportation in 605 BC, he takes four young men. You know them, Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Many of you know them by their pagan names. We need to know them by their Jewish biblical names. And we saw that the word for youth is a Hebrew word, yeladim, which means they were between 15 and 19 years of age. That's why we know when we come to the sixth chapter that Daniel is an elderly man. He's somewhere between 85 and 90 years old because the 70 years of deportation has almost expired. In chapter 2, we study King Nebuchadnezzar, who's in charge, and God gives him a dream. No one in the kingdom can interpret it but Daniel. Daniel is given the grace by God to give, to give him understanding. And it's a dream that begins with Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, goes all the way through the Antichrist. We're going to learn more about the Antichrist in the book of Daniel than any other book in all of the Bible, all the way through the second coming of Messiah, through these different successive kingdoms. The first kingdom is the Babylonian kingdom, and he said to him, you are the head of gold, O king. But what he didn't like was that after him, there would be other kingdoms who would conquer Babylon. So if you remember, when you came to the third chapter, instead of just being the head of gold, he constructs an image that's all gold. And so that's the connection between the second and third chapters, unfortunately, often missed. So out there on the plain of Dura, 11 miles south of the city of Jerusalem, far away from any of the other gods in their temples, he erects this great statue, and he asks everyone to bow down and worship it. Of course, we don't know where Daniel is, but Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah refuse, and because of that, they are thrown into the furnace of fire. But God supernaturally delivers them, and Nebuchadnezzar recognizes this. You would think that special revelation would be enough to make him repent, but because he is so filled with pride, he doesn't. But God nonetheless loves Nebuchadnezzar. And so if you were here in the fourth chapter, we saw how God dealt with his pride and how Nebuchadnezzar was gloriously converted. And someday, if you're a Christian, you will meet King Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Then last week, if you were here, we studied the fifth chapter, the fall of Babylon. Darius the Mede, he comes in and he takes over during the time of a drunken fest. Belshazzar, King Belshazzar is in control. You read nowhere that it's a drunken fest. You read nowhere that there's, um, uh, that people are high, but we know that. You will hear preachers preach about it because of the Hebrew word that we studied last week for taste. He tasted the wine, and it was not simply a transfer of flavor. He was basically being intoxicated. He was tasting its effects. And so some of the newer translations will render it while under the influence. While under the influence, he sees his hand writing on the wall. Daniel comes in, interprets it. It's immediately fulfilled. He is overthrown. And so we read here at the end of chapter 5, that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. So here in chapter 6, Darius the Mede is in power. Now, like every book we study, I want you to be able to think your way all the way through the book. 
I want you to be able to think, oh yeah, two parts to Daniel and think your way through every chapter. Why is that important? Not simply to make you a smarter sinner, but for us to become more like Jesus Christ. God wants to use His Scripture in our life. And that's why I'm so encouraged when many of you take notes. Many of you don't. You need to. Because it's not just the preached word, it's the meditated word that's going to change you. And some of us are no different today than we were a year ago. Because we have a casual approach to the Word of God. So let God speak to you this morning. Write down some things. Go back and reflect on them. God wants this book to become a part of your life, to change you, but also to be a tool in your hand as you disciple other people. So when you think of Ephesians or Genesis or Daniel or Jeremiah, your mind doesn't go blank. You know what the book is about, and you know the broad general outline and how it unfolds. Now with that setting... For the context, there in your bulletin, there's an outline if you're new. And I want us to first consider the decree of the king. Uh, this uh, passage unfolds really under three headings, just as the events transpire, and that's why I've outlined it as such. We want to begin with the decree of the king that really falls into three parts. Here in the opening three verses, we find the promotion of the prophet. Follow along as we read the first few verses. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners, that these satraps might be accountable to him and that the king might not suffer loss. So we learn here that Darius reorganizes the kingdom into 120 satrapies. And over each satrapy, there's a satrap. The word satrap is an Aramaic word. And by the way, remember we're in the Aramaic section, and I told you why God translated this portion in Aramaic. But in both Aramaic and in the Hebrew rendering, the word satrap means someone who is over something. Uh, it referred to a leader, someone who cared for a region, so to speak. So there's 120 of them, and there are three commissioners, of one of whom is Daniel. So presumably, each had 40 satrapies for which he was responsible. And this was all done. These protectors of the realm were as such, notice, that the king might not suffer loss. Now he chooses Daniel and he's about ready to promote Daniel even over the three commissioners to make him second in command because of who he was. We're told that in verse 3. Notice, then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. So he's about to be made prime minister because he, ex he possessed an extraordinary spirit. If you know anything about the prophet Daniel, you know he was a breed apart. Ezekiel sets him apart with Noah and Job in the 14th chapter of his book. Daniel, Noah, Job, great men of God. And of course, Daniel is one of those few people in all of the Bible, along with Nehemiah, Joshua, and Joseph, of whom nothing evil is ever written. Now, we know he was a sinner. The Bible says, for there is no man who does not sin. All have sinned in another text and fall short of the glory of God. We know he was a sinner, but there's nothing recorded about this man. God distinguished him for who he was. And really, promotion in any kind of work, be it secular or Christian, if you are a believer, is done not so much on who you know, but what you are. And that's certainly true of Daniel. He had an extraordinary spirit. 
What gave him an extraordinary spirit? God's spirit at work in his life. Now remember, under the old covenant, under the old promise, under the old testament, the word testament and covenant mean the same. God had a temple for his people. But under the new covenant, under the new deal, under the new testament, God has a people who are his temple. Paul said, we are the temple of God. Under the old covenant, there were just select people who had a special relationship with God's Spirit. That's why um, just men like David and even Saul, David was fearful when the Spirit of God departed from Saul. He didn't come and live in them permanently. That is a new covenant phenomenon where the Spirit of God at the moment of faith comes to live in you, you're sealed with Him for the day of redemption. He is God's mark, God's guarantee, God's down payment that what He began, He will indeed finish. That's why it could be said of John, there was never a man born of a woman greater than John, but the person who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Why? Because every new covenant believer has a uniquely different relationship than all the old covenant saints because of the blood of Christ. In New Testament terminology, we would say he was filled with the Spirit. He had an extraordinary spirit. And the words that are translated really in the Hebrew speak of a good attitude. You might say he had a good attitude. Because he was spirit-directed. I used to have a professor at Dallas Seminary who would always tell us, he said, listen, your attitude will affect your altitude. Your attitude will affect your altitude. And by that, he did not mean what Joe Olstein and others who talk about you know, pos- a positive mental attitude. He wasn't talking about that at all. And there are Christians, unfortunately, who have a bad attitude. And they really limit their effectiveness for God. But what we are speaking about is someone who's dependent upon the Spirit, who relies upon the Holy Spirit to live a Christian life, and a person whose mind is continually being renewed by the Word of God. Someone who has a biblical mental attitude. And you're only filled to the degree by which you allow God to renew your mind and you depend upon Him to carry that out. Now remember, Daniel's an old man. He's between 85 and 90 based on the chronology of the book. And he lives at a time in biblical history when ages were comparable to today. Moses will write in Psalm 90, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years or if due to strength, 80 years. Now he's an old man, but he's still being greatly used of God. Wouldn't you like to be an old man and greatly used of God? I don't want to be a crusty, old, bitter person. I don't want to get bitter. I want to get better. And you can be. Now, what made this man so different? Well, in the opening chapter, we saw, one, he had the physical energy and the spiritual uh, determination to live for God. Physically and spiritually, and the two are connected all the way through Scripture, Daniel had distinguished himself. Remember, he refused to eat the pagan food that the king offered. And he refused the king's drink. Why? Because it was strong drink and forbidden by Holy Scripture. And so he had distinguished himself by the things he did and the way he thought. And by the way, let me just say parenthetically, some of us can walk with God, but we can compromise ourselves physically. And so that when we come to the end of life, we don't have the physical capability in which to serve the living God. Now, sometimes, understand, it's not always by choice. The Apostle Paul in his 50s was given a thorn in the flesh. 
He had some kind of physical ailment. We don't know specifically what it was. If I were a betting man, I would probably say his eyes. But whatever it was, he had a physical ailment that in some ways allowed him as a constant reminder to depend upon God and to walk humbly before his God. Sometimes people have physical impairments because God wants to demonstrate through their life that circumstance is not the source of joy, but the living God is. Sometimes there is sickness that comes just because we live in a fallen world. Sometimes, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 30, some sickness comes as a result of our sin because of discipline. And he said, for this reason, some of you are weak and some of you are sick and some of you sleep. God takes us to the woodshed sometimes physically so that we can get our life right spiritually. But then I think there are so many Christians in our day who in their 60s and 70s and 80s lack the physical stamina to serve God because of the way they lived in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. Look, I want to take care of myself now if I can, so that if the Lord tarries and He allows me to reach the age of an old man, you say you're already an old man, I want to be an old, old man, all right? Uh, I, I want to be able to be used by Him. I want to have the physical stamina to carry out the will of God in my life. Now, unfortunately, there's a lot of Christians, especially in America, who come to the end of life and they're wasting their lives. Why? Because they're listening more to what the society says and what current Christian America says than what the Word of God says. I meet some older Christians today who are more concerned about their retirement account and their golf game than they are investing in the kingdom of God. Now, look, you may come to the point in your life where you, quote-unquote, retire, But as believers, you know, we never retire from life. We are to serve the living God right to the end. And God has no reason to sustain some of us because we're just wasting our lives. Look, God wants you to make an impact right to the very end. And and I know we've had a lot of older adults in the last five years who've come to Christ. God brought them from other parts of the United States because they were coming from a section where the gospel was not preached. And he brought them to this little town and they found the living God. And I meet some of them and they say, Pastor, I want God to use me. And I love that. I love that spirit. You know, you meet some of these crusty old Christians and they don't want to do anything and they're going to have deep regrets at the judgment seat of Christ. But we are to have an impact on the generation in which we live. We're not to say, well, look, I've, I've served my time and now I can do what I want. No, 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 no. God calls you to impact the next generation. But you won't be able to impact the next generation in your 60s, 70s, and 80s if in your 20s, 30s, and 40s you're not living for God. He didn't just wake up one day as an old man and and be used mightily of God. He was being used mightily of God as an old man because he was walking with God as a teenager. God calls the older men in the church to influence the younger men. In Titus 2, he calls the older women in the church to impact the younger woman. One woman said to me, would you give me a younger woman? I said, no, I won't. Go find one. Get involved in the church and find one. Some of you were here at the Wednesday night service. And you heard some of the prayer requests that came that this past week dealt with a lot of young families. And listen, if we're in tune, some of us, I know some of you can't come on Wednesday night, and I respect that. 
but some of us could be here when we pray corporately, and you would start getting in touch with the next generation. This is a healthy church because it's cross-generational. We have young people, old people. We have a mix of the whole community, black, white, Indian, Chinese, Japanese, Filipino, German. It's a mix of the whole community, educated, uneducated. And if you get involved and get to know people, you can begin to have an impact in their lives. I think of some of the people that God used, even as an old age. Now, I don't know where Michelangelo was spiritually. I fear he was a pervert. But nonetheless, they said he did his greatest work at the age of 89. Thomas Edison was still inventing at the age of 90. J.C. Penney, who is a committed born-again Christian who gave 90% of his income to the work of Jesus Christ, was still in business at the age of 95. Ronald Reagan, also a born-again president, he was president at the age of 77. John Wesley the great Methodist preacher at the age of 88 was still preaching four sermons a day. Billy Graham recently squeaked out his latest book at the age of 96. Two of my professors at Dallas Seminary, Dr. Dwight Pentecost and Dr. John Walford, both taught right up to the ends of their lives, 99 and 92 years of age, respectfully. So here's Daniel in his late 80s. Remember, when you get old, you get old one day at a time, and you will never be at the age of 85, which you are not at 25. You say, well, I've blown most of my life. Well, today can be the first day of the rest of your life. Start living for him. Go forward. Now, with that organizational setting given, beyond Daniel's success and prosperity uh, in his promotion, that made him the object of jealousy, which brings us to the persecution by the princes. The persecution by the princes. Look now, if you will, at verse 4. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. You talk about integrity of life. They put this man under the microscope and they can't find anything wrong. He becomes the object of an official investigation. They sought to find something wrong in him, but they could find nothing wrong with him. And as you read through it, these private investigators find at least four truths concerning the man's life. First, they look at his professional life. And we read in regards to that, number one, they could find no ground of accusation. And number two, no evidence of corruption. Here's a man in a position of leadership. There's these other commissioners, 120 satraps and some other nobles, and they can't find any corruption in him. He's got a clean record. In addition, number three, it says, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful. He was what? Faithful was one, is one word in Hebrew. It carries the idea of someone you can rely on. The Net Bible translates it trustworthy. He was trustworthy. He's a man who took on an assignment and could finish it. And I love people like that in the church. People who are in it for the long haul. People who are not quitters. And beyond his professional life, they looked at his personal life. When they followed him after hours, number four, there was no negligence or corruption that could be found in him. You take those two words together, no negligence, that is, the things he was supposed to do, he did. 
no corruption, that is the things he was not supposed to do, he didn't do. There were no sins of omission, there were no sins of commission. He consistently walked with God. He was the same person at work as he was at home. Or in modern vernacular, he was the same person in the church as he was at work. And that's the kind of integrity that gives you a platform for Jesus Christ. Whether you are an employee or whether you are an employer who own a business and you're serving the general public, the truth of Colossians 3.23 is lived out in this man's life. Whatever you do, do your work not half-baked. Do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for man. Why? Because it's the Lord Christ whom you serve. Put Jesus Christ in the face of your employer. Put Jesus Christ's face over your company and serve him. That's what this man did. He served the Messiah. They basically say, we can't find anything wrong with this guy. He's clean as a whistle. So what do they do? They conspire a different way. Look at verse 5. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless... We find it against him with regard to the law of his God. So four truths surface concerning his personal and professional life. They're all good. And so now they strike out after his religious life. They know he's deeply committed to God, which tells me, by the way, two things about the man immediately. Number one, he's not ashamed of his faith. He's outspoken about his practices and his commitments. And number two, they recognize that his commitment to God was so strong, so genuine, so real, that even the threat of death, as we will see, will not deter him from serving his God. I know that from what's recorded here, starting in verse 6. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. See, since they can't find any corruption in Daniel's character, they go after a weakness in Darius' character. If you know anything about Darius, not only from the secular sources of the day that are available to us, but when you read this chapter, you know right off he's a brilliant man, and he knew he was a brilliant man. He was a great administrator, and he knew he was a great administrator. But he was puffed up. He was filled with pride such that he thought of himself more of, as a god than he did as a man, which brings us to the pronouncement from the palace. Think about the pronouncement from the palace beginning now in verse 7. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and governors, have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now that's a lie right off. Remember last time we studied in Hebrew the difference between a singular, a dual, and a plural. In English, we just have singular and plural. In uh, Hebrew, they have all three, singular, dual, and plural. It's not a dual here, commissioners, it's a plural. In other words, they're saying all the commissioners, there's only three, they're including Daniel in the process, all the commissions, not to mention all the prefects and all the satraps, we've determined that no one should pray to anyone but to you, O Darius, for 30 days. Well, Daniel didn't say that, but they lied about Daniel. And I doubt very seriously they went to all 120 satrapies to find out if all these guys were in agreement. In either case, verse 8, 
Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Now, this law, we're told specifically, was according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. What did that mean? Well, among other things, it meant there was no wiggle room. In the Medo-Persian culture, they believed their monarchs were infallible. At least they respected their word that much. And so, if a king wrote an injunction, a law, because he spoke infallibly, it would be carried out no matter what, because not to carry it out was to admit his infallibility. It would be to demean his own authority and his own respect. And so here in verse 9, we find this king signing into law this pronouncement, which in essence says, one representative of the gods and one mediator between the gods and man, Darius the Mede. Now, I'm sure when they came up with this idea, it appealed to his pride. He's also a prideful man. We've seen that. It had to be intoxicating to know that everybody in the kingdom for 30 days would pray for him. Even if it expired in 30 days, it made him feel good. He liked the idea, and so he signs it. He falls to their falsehood and their flattery, and he signs the injunction. You know, I I thought about that this week, and I thought, what if the American government said, no one in America for 30 days can pray to the Christian God. No one in America can pray to the Christian God. And I thought, I wonder what effect that would have. You know, there's a lot of Christians, so-called Christians, who go 30 days and they never pray. There are some people who go months on end and they never pray. Sometimes, though, I think, well, how can a person really be born again, genuinely converted, renewed by the Spirit of God, the one who prompts us and leads us and guides us, and not pray for 30 days? It either meets, means, A, they're a pseudo-Christian, not a genuine born-again person, or they are so far out of fellowship that their heart is a million miles away. So this decree goes out, which brings us, secondly, to the devotion of the prophet. In this pericope that follows is a wonderful example of biblical courage. And we see Daniel's devotion highlighted in at least three ways. First, let's think about the commitment of Daniel starting now in verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem. He entered his house and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Daniel had a decision to make. This was not some minor inconvenience. Like in chapter 3 with the three men in the fiery furnace, this is first commandment stuff. He couldn't rationalize this. He couldn't, think, he couldn't think in his mind, well, you know, I've been praying all my life. I pray every day three times. What's 30 days? I'll just go 30 days without praying. Oh, no, not Daniel. He loved his God too much. Prayer for him was not just saying, gimme, 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 gimme. It was fellowship with the living God. He enjoyed God's presence. Or maybe he could have rationalized, well, you know, I can still pray. I'll just pray in a way that they can't see me. Instead of being in the upper level where the open window is and where they have obviously spotted me such that they've come up with this injunction, I'll pray down in the lower level where no one can see me. No, Daniel couldn't do this. Prayer for Daniel was an idol-busting commitment. 
You see, the real temptation was not to pray to some quasi-god named Darius. The real temptation is whether he valued his life more than his love for his Lord. He knew that if he should pray somewhere else, if he had departed from his normal practice, they would easily conclude he loves his life more than he loves his God, and he was not about to allow his testimony to be soiled. This is important to him. Now, there are several aspects of his prayer that I want to underscore in our thinking. First, the position of his prayer. Verse 10 indicates that he prayed towards Jerusalem. Daniel prayed towards Jerusalem knowing that the document was signed. He entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had his windows open towards Jerusalem. Now, why did he face west towards Jerusalem? Well, remember, in the Old Testament, God had a temple for his people. Under the New Covenant, God has a people who are his temple. He lives in us. In the Old Covenant, he would appear, the Shekinah glory, in a section of the temple. It was the holiest place on the planet. And so they would face praying towards the very holy of holies. In Psalm 28 and verse 2, the psalmist said, Hear the voice of my supplication when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your holy sanctuary. Now, what made the temple holy, of course, was the presence of God. Put out in the margin, would you, next to verse 10, 2 Chronicles 6, 36 to 39. Just put that out in the margin for your further study. 2 Chronicles 6, 36 to 39. See, Daniel, we've already seen, he knows his Bible. He's a man whose life is saturated with the Word of God. And he knew what God had prophesied through Solomon 400 years earlier when the temple was dedicated. In 2 Chronicles 6 and verse 34, we read this to pick it up in its context. When your people go out to battle against their enemies, by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to you towards this city which you have chosen, and the house which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. You see why this was important? For a Jewish man or woman to pray in the direction of the temple, that's why today, Orthodox Jews, wherever they are, you're in the airport, it's time to pray. They get out their compasses sometimes, they figure out where Jerusalem is, and they face it, and they start praying. You go to Jerusalem today, you go not to the Wailing Wall, it was once called that, because they didn't have access into Jerusalem until the 67 war, the other part. But they took it, now it's called the Western Wall. It's not the Temple Wall, it's the Wall of the Temple Mount. The Temple was built up on top, we'll see that when we come later to the book of Daniel in future chapters. But they pray facing the Holy of Holies. This is very, very important to them. Now listen to verses 36 to 39. When they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin, that's Romans 3.23 in the Old Testament, and you are angry with them and deliver them to an enemy so that they take them away captive to a land far off or near, if they take thought in the land where they are taken captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned, we have committed iniquity, and have acted wickedly, if they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity, where they have been taken captive, and pray toward their land, which you have given to their fathers and the city which you have chosen, and toward the house which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven, from your dwelling place, their prayer and supplications, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. 
So that's why Daniel is praying towards Jerusalem. It was a Jewish man basically saying, God, we believe what your word says. We're doing exactly what your word says, and that's why I'm facing Jerusalem. So that's the position of his prayer. Think also about the posture of his prayer. We read here further into verse 10, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day. In the Bible, of course, you find people praying in all different kinds of positions, but kneeling was a sign that you were basically submissive towards God. Now, I know that outward gestures can be empty, but if uh, you know your kids roll their eyes at you, that outward gesture, you know that there's inward rebellion. There's blatant defiance. And I have found sometimes that it helps me to get my heart humble before God by kneeling before God. Do you ever kneel before God? You ever humble yourself in that way? You say it's not that important. It is important. And I hope you realize there is coming in the Bible a big kneeling day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. So here He is. He's kneeling before God. Think also about the period of His prayer. He continued kneeling on His knees three times a day. He was probably following the example of King David in Psalm 55. Evening and morning and at noon, I will pray. So it's Daniel's custom three times a day that he would set apart his life in a concerted way for prayer. This is the secret of this man's life. And it will be the secret of your life if you pray consistently and you carve out times, not just on the run, but alone, just you and God. He's basically about to become the prime minister. He is one of three over the whole kingdom. But he's not so busy or so proud that he doesn't have time to get on his knees. And he does this because he knows his Bible and he faces the living God. He doesn't care what the injunction says because Daniel fears God more than he fears puny little man. Beyond his position, his posture, the period of time, I want you to think about the purpose of his prayer. The purpose for his prayer. Verse 10 further says, He continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. He knew sooner or later he was going to get caught, yet as he petitions God, he gives thanks. You know, you've heard me say it many times. There's about 100 verses in the Bible every Christian should know, and one should be 1 Thessalonians 5.18, For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus, that you give thanks in all things. You know, when you thank God like Daniel was, he was basically saying, God, I believe your promise. In New Testament terminology, I believe that you work all things together for good. I believe in your sovereignty. I believe in your providence over the details of my life. So that's his commitment. But also consider the conspiracy. The conspiracy of the commissioners. We read now, beginning in verse 11, Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. These men, they find Daniel praying. They caught him praying, breaking the king's edict. By the way, has anyone ever caught you praying? I'm not saying in some contrived way, but wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if your kids on occasion caught you praying? Do you know what kind of an impact that would make on their lives? Here's a man, he's making petition and supplication before his God. What is he praying? 
He's praying, Lord God, if it is your will, then I would ask you, I would beg you that you would allow me to come out of this situation well. Look at verse 12. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, this statement is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. I'm sure at this point they're asking this question because they want the king to doubly affirm what he has already agreed to. And so now the trap is sprung. Verse 13. Then they answered and spoke before the king. Daniel, who was one of the exiles, you know, he's a foreigner king. He's not one of us. He doesn't really belong. Daniel, who was one of the exiles, and he accuses him of two things. They accuse him of being both hostile towards the king and habitually rebellious towards the king. Look at it. He says that he pays no attention to you. He's defying you. He pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed. But he keeps making his petition three times a day. King, this is not some forgetful lapse. This is a man who has a rebellious heart who habitually is going against your injunction. In essence, they're saying, you know what you said, king, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, you've got to throw him into the lion's den. So the trap has been sprung, which brings us now to the consternation of the king. When the king comes to grips with the circumstances, he can hardly believe what he's done. Look at verse 14. Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed. The King James is a little better here. It's a little more little. It says, he was sore displeased with himself. He, he, he is so torn up on the inside with what he has done. He was deeply displeased, and he set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. He's in a state of consternation. Daniel, whom he so highly respects, has been charged with disloyalty. And he was so short-sighted by the flattery and the deception of his own people that he signed a decree for his own death. Now, under Persian law, we know from outside writing that when a man was found guilty of a capital punishment, he would be executed the same day. So this king, as the text reflects, works right up until sunset. He's looking possibly for some loophole in the law. Maybe he gathered the best lawyers in the kingdom and had them research everything to see if there was some legitimate way in which the law could be set aside or by which Daniel could be pardoned by the king and not break the legal requirements. But this absolute monarch is governed by an absolute law of the Medes and the Persians. And while everything in his life wants to deliver his servant, he cannot. Verse 15, Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. And I'm sure at this point the king has it all together in his mind. These men who wrote the statute himself, which he himself put his hand to, he recognizes their evil plot that he has been nothing but a pawn, but they think they've got it all covered. 
Because he can't even execute them according to Persian law when it's all over based on the legalities of this kingdom. And so he feels trapped and he has no choice at the end of the day but to have Daniel cast into the lion's den. Look at verse 16. Then the king gave orders and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. Now the word den in the original Aramaic or in the Hebrew translation of the text, remember this is the Aramaic portion, in both languages, means a pit or a cistern. It's used that way in other passages in the Old Testament in Hebrew. And so these Persians would dig these dens. Uh, sometimes they would use a cave and they would dig a hole in the top if they could. This artist's rendering here, by the way, is not all that bad. You can see there's a hole in the top for ventilation. And then on the side, there's an opening for the lions to come in and to eat the victims. And most dens were very, very large. They could accommodate several hundred lions and a few hundred people. And as we'll see here in a moment, in verse 24, there's a whole bunch of folks that are going to go down into this before it's all over. And this was a very fearful form of capital punishment. The Medes were experts in capital punishment. And if you know anything about Medo-Persia, then you know that they were the ones who invented persecution, uh, who invented crucifixion by which our own Lord was executed. They thought it up. The Romans perfected it as a means of capital punishment. But centuries before God's prophets wrote of it, a thousand BC, Daniel speaks of it, 700 years before Christ, Isaiah speaks of Christ, Messiah being pierced through for our iniquity. And so here is King Darius. He's, he's waiting at the place of execution for Daniel. He greatly admires this man, this man that whom he's asked to be prime minister. And we read here in verse 16, the king spoke and said to Daniel, your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. Whether he knew it or not, I don't think he believed it from what we'll he will say, but whether he knew or not, he was speaking a word of prophecy, just like Caiaphas did in the New Testament. And in both the original, Hebrew and Aramaic, it's indicated by the, by the words that were spoken that Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Uh, and, and he throws him into the lion's den, basically hoping somehow that he would be rescued. Maybe he had heard of the event 50 years earlier where three of Daniel's friends, were in the fiery furnace in that same city and had been rescued. We don't know for sure, but this king says, your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. And please don't miss the words. I have the word constantly circled in my Bible. Your God whom you constantly serve. Darius knew Daniel as a man who faithfully and consistently served his God no matter what. Then we read in verse 17, a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. And this, of course, is how a document or a tomb or in this case, a lion's den was legally secured. They'd take a clay substance and they placed it where the stone hinged against the wall and if the clay was broken, the clay that would be put between the hinges and the signet ring was put there, and if it was broken, then the tomb or the document, or in this case, the lion's den had been violated. But not only does the king put his signet ring, all the nobles impress their signet rings. And that's important because King Darius can't wiggle out of this 
It's a sealed deal. It's a done deal, which brings us now to the deliverance of the Lord in verses 18 to 28. If deliverance must come, it won't come from Darius. It must come from God. Notice first, if you will, the misery in the palace. We read in verse 18, Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting. No entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. Now, first observe, the king spent the night fasting. Ironically, both the lions and the king spent the night fasting. (laughs) Not for religious regions for for this man, and, and certainly the lions, of course, were prevented from eating him. But no doubt he's so ashamed, he's so torn up on the inside that one of his choicest servants was in that place that he couldn't even think about eating. Not to mention, no entertainment that night. No music, no dancing girls, if that's what they had. And third, no sleep. In fact, the Hebrew text literally reads like the Aramaic, his sleep had run away from him. Apparently, this king tried to sleep, but he tossed and turned on his bed all night long. He couldn't sleep as he considered the plight of Daniel and his being tricked which brings us to the miracle in the den. Beyond the misery in the palace, think about the miracle in the den. Verse 19 begins, Then the king arose at dawn at the break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. So since the king couldn't sleep at the crack of dawn, he makes his way to the lion's den as fast as this 62-year-old man can get there. And we read here in verse 20, when he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. You can almost hear the anguish in his soul. He must have peered down as early in the day into a black hole. He doesn't really know whether he has survived the night or not. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you constantly serve been able to deliver you from the lions? Isn't it interesting that Darius refers to him as Uh, that he is a servant of the living God. Though he had never personally witnessed the miracle of the living God like Nebuchadnezzar had, like Belshazzar had, he had witnessed this man's life. He knew that God was alive in this man's life. And I wonder if people looked at our lives, if they could say, oh, he or she or that young man or that young girl... They are servants of the living God. Now notice Daniel's response in verse 21. Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. I love that greeting. Even in the lion's den, he uses a proper greeting. And you know it had to touch the king's heart. He's so respectful. And he was affirming that he was still willing to serve this king even though this king had thrown him into the lion's den. He expresses his loyalty in spite of the fact that his nobles had accused him of being disloyal. And of course, in this man's mind, as we've already seen in other texts, it's not enough for Daniel to say that he was alive. He wanted to say why he was alive, because he was a man who lived for the glory of God. Look at verse 22. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, inasmuch as I was found innocent before him, and also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. Maybe you've seen the card in the front, it says, why didn't the lions eat Daniel? You open it up on the inside, it says, because they knew you can't keep a good man down. That's why I don't tell jokes, nobody laughs at them. Anyway, now don't miss this. 
God sends down one of his lion-taming angels. And he says, don't let them put a claw on him. Don't let one tooth mark get on his skin. I love it. It's the work of God Almighty. And I've told you already that next to the book of Genesis, the most attacked book in all the Bible is the book of Daniel for two reasons, because of the miracles recorded and because of its prophetic nature. We are getting ready as we come to the prophetic section to study some of the most mind-blowing prophecies found anywhere in all of the Word of God. And that's why I said, if you can believe, Barashit bara Elohim, in the beginning, created God, Hashemayim, Vietahadits, the heavens and the earth, you can believe anything. God's Word is true. Chapters 1 through 11 is not some parable as the liberals of our day say, just teaching some spiritual truth, it's history. That's how Jesus thought of it. That's how he thought of Daniel. Not as Daniel the historians, as the liberal critics say, but as Daniel the prophet. Verse 23. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den. Remember, it was a pit, as I explained and as we pictured. And no injury, whatever was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. He had trusted, we might say, he had faith in his God. That's the way the writer of the Hebrews, by divine commentary, understands it in the 11th chapter, because it says there that by faith, Daniel shut the mouths of lions. God spared him, and here's this man in his late 80s. The king couldn't sleep all night. I won't be at all surprised to meet this guy and have him find out he had the best night's sleep he ever had. Probably used the lion as a pillow and a few of them for blankets, and probably had a few tails swishing to keep away the mosquitoes and flies. In either case, that brings us to the message of the king. Look at verse 24. The king then gave orders... And they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel and they cast them, their children and their wives into the lion's den. That was the Persian custom. Not just the person guilty of the crime, but all their immediate family members would suffer with them. Now that's not God's way. God recorded through Moses in the Torah, fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin which tells me in Joshua 7 when Achan and his whole family is put to death is because they were all active participants in his sin. Listen, everything God records, he doesn't endorse. He's just recording here for us what the Persians did in their culture. He's just telling us what this pagan king did. And then the text adds, and they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. These hungry, ferocious lions who all night long had been stayed by an angel of the Lord before these people even touched the bottom of the pit, they were in the lion's mouths. Like Haman of old, who erects a gallows in order to hang Mordecai, these men are hung in their own trap. Now with the execution complete, we read verse 25, Then Darius the king, wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who are living in all the land, may your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, 
For he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And his dominion will be forever. And he rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. Now while Daniel does not repudiate his gods. He certainly cannot argue with the testimony of Daniel's God. There's no record of him coming to faith. This is like the early days of Nebuchadnezzar. It's just chin music. He believes it, but it's chin music, but he doesn't embrace it for his own heart. Now, I've seen God use some of you in this way. Your life has been so transformed. People know that God is at work in your life. And so the chapter concludes, so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, and, or you could say, even the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now, how are we going to apply this text of Scripture? Let me make three applications as we close. Number one, I am reminded that our ability to handle the lion's dens of our lives are directly related to our private walk with the Lord. Now, your lions might be different. It might be an illness. It might be some disabling of your body some business reversal, maybe slander, maybe the loss of a loved one, any number of things. And sometimes, you know, you see a Christian go through one of these things and and all of a sudden their life comes unraveled. You say, what happened? I thought he or she was a mature Christian. But you see, all you saw was their outer life. You didn't see their inner life. You didn't see their hidden life. You see, the difference between Daniel and many of us is at the top of his priority list was spending time in fellowshipping with God. Is that at the top of your priority list? Is that important to you? Does this past week reflect that? You see, in many ways, when we go through a crisis, the reason we respond the way we do is because that is not a priority in our lives when it needs to be. Second, I learned from this chapter of Scripture that the power of our personal testimony can give us a credible platform in which to witness for the Lord. Jesus spoke of us, true believers, as salt. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It's good for nothing anymore except to be thrown underfoot and trampled underfoot by men. If you lose your saltiness, if you lose your Savior, Savior, then you're really good for nothing. You don't have the ability to preserve righteousness. When I was the director of executive ministries in Dallas before I came here, my last assignment with Campus Crusade, I had a number of CEOs in a Bible study, and one was the CEO of Wyndham Hotels. And I'll never forget what he shared with me. One of the hotels at the time was in Nashville. And he said, Carl, when the Dove Awards came to Nashville and my hotel was filled to the brim with Christian fans and and artists, there were more pornographic movies rented that night than at any other single time of the year. And we wonder why the world is throwing up all over us. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Salt preserves righteousness. Light dispels darkness. 
And I realize in these last days there are so many who profess Christianity who are not Christians at all. But please understand, Jesus said, if you lose your saltiness, if you lose your light, you lose your effectiveness. It's not our likeness to the world that gives us an impact. And this is what concerns me so much over Perry Noble in his new spring movement that has now set up headquarters in Bluffton. Is they're trying to win the world by becoming like the world. And any pastor listening to me, you need to warn your flock of the danger because many of God's people are getting sucked into such movements. It's your distinctiveness from the world that gives you the opportunity to have an impact in the world. Two years before her death, pictured her Cassie Burnell. When she was 15 years old, she hated Christ. She was involved in witchcraft and drugs. But a youth ministry won her to the Lord there in Colorado, and she had a magnificent testimony. She became a young evangelist, and she would repeatedly lead young ladies to Christ. And there in Columbine, when that young man came in and committed that awful massacre, and he put a gun to her head and asked her if she believed in God, She did not say, as the press reported, yes, I believe in God. She said, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And he shot her. Just a few weeks before, they had videotaped her testimony. And they played it at her funeral. And there are hundreds of young people there, and 75 of whom gave their lives to Christ that morning. Cassie Burnell was like Daniel. She lived distinctively different, yet God in His sovereignty chose not to deliver her out of her lion's den because God's ways are not our ways. Please know, it is a distinctively different kind of life that will give you a platform to speak for our Lord. This young girl could basically say, for He is the living God and enduring forever. And His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And His dominion will be forever. Amen? Do you have that kind of life? Third and finally, there is coming a judgment of fire on all who refuse to believe. Daniel's associates who did not know the God of Israel who rejected him, who spurned him, they ended up in the lion's den. And there's a lesson to learn from that because Jesus teaches us in Luke the 13th chapter, whether it was in the execution of the Galileans or their Tower of Siloam falling on some people, that national calamities are to be a reminder of eternal judgment. And may I remind you, if you've never met Christ as your Savior, and if Christ does not return first, when you die, you will go into a lion's den. And it will be a lion's den in which there will be no rescue and no Savior to pull you out. Because it will be a fixed place for all of eternity. And it will be under the rulership of a roaring lion and not under the leadership of the lion of the tribe of of Judah. And if you've never met God, you can meet Him. But you can only meet Him through Jesus Christ. If you will come in genuine repentance and put your faith where God put your sin on our Savior. 
Would you do that? Father, thank you today that you rule in heaven above and on earth below. Someday you said all the kings of the earth shall praise you. Your word says, when they hear the words of your mouth, yes, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. Thank you that a day is coming, O God, when the earth, a knowledge of you will be like the waters covering the earth. Thank you that there is coming a special day for your people. Thank you that even in this evil hour, that you are on your throne, that you are setting the stage to the people of Israel for the return of your Son from heaven. Help us not to be so blind and dumb to the Scriptures, but please, we ask in the days ahead, open our eyes to the truths of the book of Daniel that we might see the very days that we are living. Oh God, I pray today for someone who is not sure of their salvation, that today would be a turning point And if you're here, my friend, and you say, I want to go to heaven, I hope I go to heaven, you can know, the Bible says, but you have to come through Christ. And the reason you don't know is because you don't know if you're good enough. You're not, and you can never be. You cannot be your own Savior. Salvation is not a reward to the righteous. It's a gift to the guilty. And if you will come and call upon Jesus today, He will save you, but you must take God at His word. Would you say in simple childlike faith, Lord Jesus, by your death and resurrection, save me and change me. Father, help someone today to do that. And for those of us who have met you, help us not to get caught up in the folly of this age, wasting our lives, investing in nothing, and coming to the end of the life to having done very little for the kingdom of God. God, help some of our oldest adults, some who have been very foolish to make this the first day of the rest of their lives. Help those who have been very wise to continue on that path. And help those in their 20s and 30s and 40s, both spiritually and physically, to watch over their hearts with all diligence that when we might come to the end of life, should your son tarry, that we will be like Daniel. And we ask it like Daniel does. For the glory of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.